This morning we're going to continue in Esther. And our text this morning is Esther chapter 4. I invite you to turn there. And as we've been doing, we're going to have one of our congregation come up and read that. But grab, grab your Bibles, grab your apps, open up to Esther 4 and follow along. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover one right under a seat around you. We invite you to open that up to Esther. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that home. So that way you have God's Word. But I'd ask Lynette Levy to come up and read from Esther chapter 4 for us. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hakith, uh, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hakith went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gates, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had been promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hakith went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hakith and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think of yourself that in this king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Thank you, Lynette. The story progresses. And at the end there, you heard the words that Esther said, If I perish, I perish. And that is our title this morning as we explore this critical time where courage was needed. In, in 432 A.D., St. Patrick, uh, a missionary to Ireland, arrived on the Emerald Isle to begin his work of evangelizing the Irish. Now, what, what this doesn't say is in the past, he had actually been taken captive as a slave and taken to Ireland as a slave and spent a number of years in captivity there, escaped, got away, did his biblical training, and God called him back to that very same land. 
And so he comes back to begin his work evangelizing them. And upon his arrival, he discovered that his competition for the souls of the people would come from the pagan Druid religion and their priests. St. Patrick's struggles with the existing pagan priests truly begin with one rebellious and bold act that reverberates throughout history. During the Druid springtime fire festival known as Beltane, there was a ritual where pagan priests commanded that all fires in the land be extinguished under the threat of death. The pagans would then light a fire called the High King's Fire. This was a fire of worship to the Druid king. And then all other fires in the land would be relit from that fire. And it represented honoring the Druid king, worshiping the Druid king, and the statement that all life was from this Druid king. Because this pagan festival occurred at the same time as Easter, St. Patrick seized the opportunity and climbed the hill of Slain, a different hill, but one that you could see all through the land, and he built an enormous Easter bonfire that could be seen for miles around. The infuriated high king sent soldiers and chariots to kill Patrick and put out his fire, but they were unable to extinguish it. They were unable to kill him, and revival started in the land of Ireland. One bold act. One courageous act that he was in the right place at the right time where God had him, and he took advantage of that and said, I will not bow to the pagan king, and I will courageously stand for the Lord God, creator of the universe. And it changed everything. We look at that and we're like, wow, what a hero. What a hero. And we're going to see that with Esther today. But our point today is, that should be every one of us. Are we willing to take those bold steps of courage in our defining moments? Each of us are faced with defining moments where we decide whether or not to stand for Christ. Whether we decide whether or not to make it known that we're a Christian whether or not we're going to stand for truth. And when we're faced with those defining moments and we have a choice to make, those are times God wants to use us. Sometimes we see those moments, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we keep from acting out of fear or a variety of other reasons. But our answer or our response, our attitude should be, I'm going to stand for God no matter what. If I perish, I perish. Because God is worth it. And God is worth standing for. And so today we come to Esther chapter 4, and we're at the defining moment in the book of Esther. If you remember where we left our uh, last week at the end of chapter 3, we had left where Haman was just mad at Mordecai. His pride, his ego had been offended, and so he's going to get back at Mordecai with you know an appropriate response and kill all the Jews. Just exterminate several million, maybe over 20 million people because he's mad at this one guy for offending him. And we see at the end of chapter 3, the king and Haman are having a feast and just enjoying it and partying, while the Jews, in fact, more than the Jews, all of Susa, the capital, and all of the region is in turmoil. What is happening? These were people that were living side by side with them, that they did business with. Some hated them, undoubtedly. There was an anti-Semitic undercurrent here. But some were friends with them and and people are like, what is going on? And the king and his right-hand man are sitting having dinner, enjoying nice food, oblivious to what is going on. And that's where we left last week. And it was a crisis point, a defining moment 
what is God going to do? And as we've seen in Esther, God's name isn't mentioned because the author is pointing out that God is working sovereignly behind the scenes. Even when we don't see him, God is at work. And he brings the story to a crux this week. What will their decision be? What will Mordecai do? What will Esther do? Will God let his people die? Will God let the line of Christ die? Or will he rescue and use events and sovereignly protect his people? And so we come to chapter 4, which Lynette read for us. And we, we, I love reading a story that way because we get the sense of a story and we'll, we'll look through chapter 4 and we'll look at five different movements of the story. And then we'll pull some lessons about courage out of those movements. But the story begins with verses 1 through 3 that Mordecai and the Jews are mourning the extermination edict. They're mourning the extermination edict. And we see that starting in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, when he learned about the edict, when he learned about his defiance to not bow down and proclaim Haman as a deity, when he learned that that was going to cost his people, their lives. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and with a bitter cry. And we have to understand what's happening there. And and in our culture, you know, we don't go to the mall and see too many people in sackcloth and ashes in the middle screaming, right? So we're not used to this. But this would have been just a very appropriate response of mourning, a very appropriate response of of the the fear of the the anguish that they were experiencing. When we think of tearing of the clothes, that represented repentance. It represented um, an undoing of your life. And then sackcloth and ashes was again symbolic of mourning. And for the Israelites, usually symbolic of coming in in, in repentance to God. Now the text doesn't say that. So we're left to say, you know, are they just doing this because it's the thing to do? Or are they doing this in humility to God? And I think as we look at the grand flow of the text and then how it parallels some of the other texts like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, and Joseph, I think we see a people that are crying out to God for help. And so he puts on the sackcloth. And and sackcloth, I don't know if you've ever been like any bag races or anything like that. It's this rough, um, prickly material And they would take off all their other clothes and put that on to symbolize that this is the kind of anguish we're in. Okay? And and it did that for them. But imagine just having this itchy, prickly thing all around you. But the point was, this was nothing compared to where the heart was. He goes to the midst of the city. He cries with a loud and bitter cry. And and actually there's some repetition there that this is an outburst. It's emphasized that this is a sign of desperation, a great and bitter crying out of great bitterness. And so we get the sense that this was a defining moment. What would God do? In verse 2 then, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. Quite possibly to talk to Esther, because he and Esther still have a good relationship. But he goes up to, to the entrance of the king's gate, and he can't go any further. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. One of the, the Persian um, policies was, if you're in mourning, if you don't look happy, you don't get to go close to the king. And, and so it was a way of sort of, preserving the king's impression that everything was good in his kingdom. In fact, you had to appear cheerful before you came to the king. You remember Nehemiah? 
when he was downcast, when he heard about that, that Jerusalem had no walls, he was afraid to go into the king because he was downcast. Sa- same idea. You could, you could lose your life over this. And so they protected that the king wouldn't want to see pain in his kingdom. Scottish preacher um, Morrison said, they must have a good time at any cost. And we've sort of seen that with King Hazarus, right? They must have a good time at any cost. They must live their easy and comfortable lives as if there were no voices calling them. Now, just as an aside, throughout Esther, we see a comparison between this awful, self-centered, self-indulgent King Hazarus and God Almighty, the true king. And here we see that again, because how different is our God who draws near to the hurting, who draws near when we are in anguish, when we are mourning, invites us to share that with him in lament and invites us to come to him in our need. That's our God. That's the God that created the universe. And then King Ahasuerus, which is like, everything's cool. And if you're unhappy, don't come in. And so this is setting up this, this tension here that this king doesn't want to hear it. He can't get into Esther. There's no way to get help. This is going to end in disaster. Then in verse 3, in every province, and it wasn't just a, a Mordecai mourning, in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And you get a threefold description there. You get fasting, going without food, usually in prayer and usually calling on the Lord. You get lamenting, which is the idea of honestly telling God our hurt. You get, you get the weeping and the worry and the pain that goes with the weeping and the grieving from the sackcloth and ashes. These were a people that were in desperate times. A people who just read on the wall in 11 months from now, everybody is commanded to kill you. And can we understand the weight of that? Can we understand the weight of their pain and their desperation because there is nothing they can do at this point to stop it? You know, all of these things, like I said, are usually associated with repentance and calling on God for help. A humbling before God. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3 through 4, We read, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And you see all those same elements there. And Daniel is is in prayer and pleading with God for mercy. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We see this phrasing echoing Joel chapter 2, again, a call for repentance. And we're reminded that when life is at its worst, when, when, when life seems to have no solution, it's okay to mourn. Can I say that in church? It's okay to grieve. It's okay to go to God honestly and say, this stinks. And this is hard. And I don't know what to do. And we talked about that in James and in Psalms is full of Psalms of lament and lament comes and says, God, I am, I am hurting. My soul is wasting away. And some of the stuff in Psalms we read, I'm like, I don't know how God didn't strike him dead for saying that. Well, it's because God knew what was in his heart and says, share your heart with me and I will come near you. 
the lament, proper lament, always ends by trusting God and always ends by coming back to his character, coming back to his sovereignty and says, I am hurting and life is miserable, but I know who my God is. And so we see that in in the concept of lament. We see that God wants us to come to him. It's good to mourn as long as we end with trust and, and encouragement from the Lord, God giving us the courage. See, the idea of mourning also humbles ourselves. It's the process of letting go and saying, I can't do this, and trusting in God. It's the process of seeing the situation for how serious it is. I don't think God is pleased when life is falling apart and we come and say, oh, life is good. I'm not saying every person we talk to, we give an hour-long disparaging, a despairing talk. But when we put on this face and, and say, no, there's never any problems, there's never any problems in the Christian life. We walk with God. And life. No, then we're getting into the health and wealth heresy. We're getting into all kinds of things that aren't from God's word. No, we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world, people. And that means trials are going to happen. And difficulties are going to happen. The question is, can we turn to God? Be honest with our feelings. And trust him. See, so this morning we're talking about courage. And Esther coming and, and Mordecai coming with courage. Mourning and humbling ourselves are not enemies of courage. They are the beginning of courage. And we need to remember that and be honest with God. Be honest with our pain and then see what he wants to do with it. And so Mordecai here comes and and he is mourning and the people all around the, the cities are mourning, all through the kingdom are mourning because they are desperate and they need help, which is so many times exactly where God needs us to be. Then we come to the next chunk of verses, 4 through 9. And this, if we had to summarize it, it's Esther Esther discovers the extermination threat and must decide whether to risk herself for God's people. Esther discovers the extermination threat and must decide whether to risk herself for God's people. See, at this point, she's still in in the palace. She is, is isolated because, remember, no unhappy person could come in. So she is isolated. She's not getting news from the outside world. She hasn't been in with the king for 30 days. She doesn't know what's going on. She's being taken care of and taken care of well. And so she just hears through her servants in verse 4 that Mordecai is out in sackcloth and ashes. She's like, why? That's sort of weird. He's, he's my, my cousin. And so in verse 4, when Esther's young women, and that's the servants that she had and her eunuchs, the ones that were taking care of her, came and told her, and they told her about Mordecai out there, the queen was deeply distressed. She still cared for Mordecai. They still had a good relationship. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. See, she doesn't understand the seriousness yet, right? She's like, oh, he's out there in sackcloth and ashes. She, he, he's mourning about something. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to send him a new suit. That'll solve everything. Now, that sounds a little glib, but there, there was this sense, it looks like, of, of taking it lightly and just trying to solve the externals rather than understanding the internal. And so she tried to smooth over the problem with clothes. She doesn't understand the deep despair that sackcloth represented. Now, more than likely, with where Mordecai's at and coming to the king's gate, he's probably trying to get her attention. He probably understands that she doesn't know what's going on. We have an existential threat to the Jewish people, 
and he's trying to get her attention. And so at the end of verse 4, and that's what would support that, he wouldn't accept the clothes. He's like, no, 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 I am mourning, and I'm going to continue to mourn to see what happens here until there's some action taken. We go on in verse 5. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, probably a trusted eunuch, because all of this conversation between Esther and Mordecai is happening through through um, ambassadors or emissaries. And so she's sending a servant, and then he sends word back. Those servants had to be trustworthy, because nobody knows that Esther's a Jew yet. In fact, the plan depends on them not knowing yet. She is still earning favor. I think this is a testimony to her character. She is still earning favor with everyone that's with her, everyone that's taking care of her. And so she sends him, go find out what's going on. Order Mordecai, learn what this is, why it was. Verse 6, Hathak went, Mordecai, they talk in the open square. And in verse 7, Mordecai is ready with an answer. He, he's done his research, he's done his homework, he knows what's behind the edict, he knows a bunch, of, and, and he uses this as an opportunity to let Esther know. See, Esther doesn't know what's going on at this point. She, she's discovering. And so many times, one of our issues with courage is we don't even recognize when courage is called for, because we're living life just as normal life. And we're not looking for, is this a time that I can stand up for God? And so... He comes in, or the the servant comes, and Mordecai told him in verse 7 all that happened to him. The exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury. That's some research there. So how big it is for the destruction of the Jews. And, And that right there should, as we read this, we should have chills when we read this. This is a people being sold for money. This is wrong. This is evil. Whether it be slavery or for their lives, And that's, I think, why he's bringing it up. We've been sold off for money. That's what we're worth. Your king, he agreed to this. So he talks about the money that's going to be paid into the king's treasuries. In verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. That, again, takes planning. It takes forethought. He had a copy of the decree, sends it to Esther so she can know exactly what's happening, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Now catch what's happening in verse 8 there. Up until now, Mordecai has said, keep, keep it under wraps that you're a Jew. Keep it under wraps, uh, your people. That, that may come in handy in the future, but let's not go there. And this is the first time that Mordecai says, go tell him your people. Plead for your people. And so he is saying, this is the time for boldness. This is the time for courage. Let's stand up and do something for God and see what God does. Even though God's name isn't mentioned there, his thumbprints, his fingerprints are all over the story. And so he gives this convincing proof. He has it. And then verse 9, Hathak went and told Esther. So, so the, the servant goes back. She now knows what's going on, and she's faced with a choice. And that's the second movement of the story. The first one is the mourning. The second movement is she now has a choice. Do I risk myself for God's people, or, or do I just let this go and hope that it doesn't happen? And so we get to the next section verses 10 and 11. And this is Esther's initial fearful response. We might say, hey, she, she's a hero. 
This is going to be great. She stands up and does it and everything's good. Well, village, she's also a person. A human being like you and I. And she's thinking this through and there's fears and there's what ifs and all these things and all these reasons we don't necessarily stand up for God. She's struggling with the same things. I I love the story because it's just so real and I can identify this. And in verse 10 and 11, we see her first response. Esther spoke to Hathak, commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, so again, you know, we're playing telephone or whatever it is and the messages are going back and forth. Verse 11 is her response. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know, might have been a little bit of a jab there. Come on, everybody knows that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner courts without being called, there is but one law. Mordecai, don't you remember the law? Do you know what you're asking me to do? There is but one law to be put to death. You are asking me to put my life on the line and go into the king. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. And that could be fear. That could be just self-preservation. And there is one exception, and that's going to set up the story later. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. So in the throne room, there were seven nobles that could come to the king and then his closest advisor, which is probably Haman. And they're the ones that could be in there. No one else could come in except for those that the king summoned. So this wasn't an open-door policy. You couldn't just walk in from the kingdom and say, hey, King Hazarus, I have something to talk to you about, that taxation. No, let's not do that. Let's... You couldn't do any of that, okay? And so only those that the king summoned could come in, probably for a couple reasons. One was to protect the king, because the way that you, you rose to kingship at the time was you killed the current king. So there was always this threat of assassination. And so if you didn't let anyone in to see the king, there was some protection there. The other side of it is, this was at a very practical effect of just limiting the king's schedule. So it didn't get so busy with things, and he could just be king. I guess in this case, have his feasts and his parties and his harem, and, and he's good. And so no one could go in. And she said, unless he holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And at this point, understand this is the storyteller is telling the story in a marvelous way. At this point, we're thinking Esther is his favorite. Esther is his chosen one. This is no problem. She can go in. But then the next phrase, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And it sets up tension again that this is still a risk. He hasn't asked her to come in to the throne room, to his bedroom, to anything for 30 days. Keep in mind, this is all five years after Esther was chosen. Okay? And so there's been some time elapsed here. And and maybe he's tired of her. Maybe some of the younger women are more appealing. We don't know. But whatever it is, she hasn't been asked to go in. And that's a problem. And so it sets up a dilemma. What does she do? She's legitimately fearful for her life. and, and, And that was stopping her from action. But really, I would argue the dilemma is more, it's deeper than that. The dilemma is who is in control. Will the king kill me or will God protect me? 
When I stand up for God, will he take care of the details? Even though we saw Mordecai last week stand up and it didn't seem to turn out, but in the big picture, is God going to be faithful and take care of the details? Is he powerful enough to do that? Or do I need to be control of my life? Do I need to only take those steps that are safe, that I know won't cause me any problems, no drama, or am I willing to stand up for God? And, and, and we should all be able to relate with her in this. Fear is often a roadblock for our action. Fear is a roadblock for our evangelism so many times, right? Because we're like, I, I don't want to tell them I'm a Christian. Or fear is a roadblock sometimes of standing up for the truth when no one else in the company is standing up for the truth. And that might cost us our job. Fear can come up when we're in a group, maybe a group of friends at college. And the whole group is going a direction and, and into things they shouldn't be in and we know it's, it's not right. But are we willing to stand up and say this isn't right? That's tough. See, we, we can relate with Esther. And, and what Esther is learning here is that courage has to look past self. If we're to be people of courage, we've got to look beyond self and look to God's purposes and look to what God is doing. We have to ask the question, what is more important, my life or God's purposes? Me or God? And, and that's putting it in black and white terms and I think the right black and white terms. Are we willing to stand up against sin in our lives, in the lives of others? Are we willing to stand up for truth? Are we willing to stand up in a world where it's no longer popular to be a Christian? 30 years ago, it was easy to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I went to church this weekend. They'd be like, yeah, good job. Now they're like, what kind of idiot are you? That's the world we live in, and that's why courage is necessary. In 2 Timothy 1, 7 and 8, Paul is talking to his young protege, Timothy, and, and he reminds him of this as he's encouraging Timothy to courage and to be bold for Christ. And he says, For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. The very next verse, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. So the issue was fear of what people might say when, he's, when he proclaims it. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul's saying, step up to the plate, young man. Be bold. Be courageous for what is right. This is about God's purpose, not protecting your life. And and, and that may not even be life in terms of life and death, but the life we've created for ourselves and and the the friends that we have and the, the good things we have, the comfort that we have. So that's where Esther's at. But the story doesn't end there. And we go on to the next chunk, 12 through 14. And Mordecai hears this. He hears the response. I don't think he's happy with the response. He's like, no, 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 you can't go there. And so what we see in this chunk is Mordecai challenges Esther to take courage and act. Challenges might be a little light word there. But he challenges Esther, no, step up. This is the time to take courage and act. So 12 through 14. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai said, okay, go back and tell her this. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace... 
you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He's going to bring three points. His first point is in that verse and says, you're not exempt. Your life is threatened to just like all of ours. They're going to find out you're a Jew. They're going to kill you. And so that attacks self-preservation and that attacks this idea of, well, life will be okay if I just do nothing. No, he's like, if you do nothing, you'll die. And so her dilemma is a dilemma of that circumstances have hemmed her in. And we feel this sometimes. And, and they demand that she do something and act courageously and exercise faith. So that's his first point. Second point goes on in verse 14. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And his second point, and some have said this is the, even though this book doesn't mention God's name, that this verse, verse 14, is the most theologically loaded statement in the whole book. I would agree. He says, no, no, no. If, if you don't say anything, the Jews will still be saved. And there's a confidence there that Yahweh will protect them and will save them. He says, it just won't be through you. And by the way, you and your household will perish. Because you chose not to be used by God at this time. You chose not to stand up for God. Man, I can get fired up about this because this is a perfect example of theology in action, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both are true. Any system that denies either one of those is, is false. But both are true. God is sovereign. He is orchestrating things towards his end, towards his purposes. But we have human responsibility to obey, right? We have to hold those things even though we sometimes don't understand how they come together. And in this case, he's saying, yeah, if you don't obey, if you don't step up for God, God's still going to accomplish his purpose, but he'll do it a different way. And not only are you going to miss out on the blessing and the excitement of seeing God work, but you're going to perish because of it. See, God wasn't going to allow the destruction of the line of Christ. As much as Satan wanted to try, this battle isn't a fair fight because God just says, nope, I'm going to do this. And praise God. But our choice is, do we participate in that? Village, it is better to be part of his plan than to fight his plan. It is exciting, even when we don't know how it's going to work out, to stand up for God and see what's going to happen. So his second point is, the Jews will be saved with or without her. His third part of his argument then is the rest of verse 14. This is why God has you here. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Probably a phrase you've heard with Esther, for such a time as this. And his point is, this is the purpose of everything that's happened. All that stuff about being taken from your home and having forced to, to go into the king and marry the king and your life being upended and, and all the way back to your parents dying, all of that has gotten you to where you are today and that is no accident. And he says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And it's a statement of God's sovereignty. It's a statement of where God has brought her. You can read Genesis 45, 5 through 8, but that just is a reminder of Joseph. Same thing, and these stories are paralleling. And Joseph, again, had all kinds of crud happen to him. And he says, no, 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 it was because God was bringing me to this place at this time so I could save his people. 
the sovereign hand of God is not silent even when it appears to be silent. He is working around us. We can guarantee that. And we obey and we stand up for him because we trust him. And so we come to the last few verses, 15 through 17. And this is the culmination of this act, this scene in the play. Esther courageously steps up and agrees to act. Esther courageously steps up and agrees, agrees to act. So the servant goes back to Esther, probably shaking in the boots a little bit. Okay, this is what Mordecai says. Don't do this. Don't, have, don't give in to fear. You need to act and go into the king. Don't stop. And in verse 15, we see the response. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. This is a great response as she courageously steps up, agrees to act. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And this isn't a giving up, well, I guess, woe is me, my life is over. No, this is a bold, courageous statement from a woman that has found her voice and is stepping up for God, and she goes, nope, God's got this. If I perish, I perish. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. And get you fired up a little bit? The example here is stellar. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away, did everything as Esther had ordered him. And we see a switch here. This chapter is the last time Mordecai gave Esther instructions. And now Esther starts giving Mordecai instructions because she has found her voice of following God and of courageously leading for God and courageously acting. Now we look at that verse 16, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Fasting was almost always associated in Judaism with prayer and with beseeching God, asking for something. I, I listed a whole bunch of verses. Just listen to these. Psalm thirty-five, thirteen. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. Nehemiah 1, 4, from around the same era. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We can see on and on and on. And fasts usually were maybe one day and maybe not even all day. This was a three-day fast, night and day. You know, right, right now, or not at this point, but during the year, Muslims celebrate Ramadan and they fast, but that fast ends at sunset and begins each morning, which is cool because you can gorge yourself at night. But this was a fast day and night for three days that said, no, we are going to spend devoted time focusing on God in prayer. And, and, and again, so many of the scholars said there is no other way to interpret this as prayer to God. Because you didn't just fast hoping for better results. No, no, no. Eat. Enjoy it before you die. No, you fasted when you were beseeching God for help and coming to him for, God, for help. So this was stripping away everything except a trust in God. A couple things just to notice here. Esther has courage, right? She's going to go into the king. She's going to risk her life. And she goes to community and says, I need all of my community praying for me. Let's all pray together that God would bless this and the king would accept me in. And she instructs fasting of going to God in prayer. And I think this is a marvelous example of including godly community 
and everyone focusing on God, the source of that courage and the source of that strength. And her answer is, then then I will risk my life. If I perish, I perish. That resolve that we saw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that says our God can save us, but if he doesn't, we're good. We're still going to worship him because he's still God. If we perish, we perish. This is the theme of a woman that trusts God and has courage for God and is about to take the riskiest step she has ever taken in her life. This is full commitment. Full commitment. Committing to God will cost us more than we think, but almost never less than our whole selves. Living for God, He wants all of us, and it is worth it. It is marvelous. It is amazing to see what He he will do. Jesus modeled this in Gethsemane when He said, Not my will, but yours be done. And he at that point is at at a crisis of his emotions and, and he follows what God has him do even though it does cost him his life. As he hangs on the cross to pay for your sin and my sin, he saved his people by saying, if I perish, I perish. And the answer was perishing. But praise God, three days later, the stone was rolled away and he rose from the dead. And he is not dead, but he is alive. That is the God that we serve. Lessons. Just in a few minutes. And we sort of hit on all these. They sort of step through the text the same way we just did. The first comes from point number two. We need to recognize these defining moments. We need to ask God for courage in them and act. Recognize defining moments. Ask God for courage and act. Are we blind to what God is doing around us like Esther was at the beginning? then ask God to open our eyes. There will be times this week that you have opportunity to stand up courageously for God. I guarantee it. If you're looking, there will be times you can stand up courageously for God. The question is, will we see it? Will we have courage? And then when we do, will we act on it? So we need to recognize those defining moments. Maybe those moments... And and, and I'm not talking... When I talk about courage, I'm not talking about doing something crazy, okay? I'm not talking get in your car, go 80 down the freeway, put it in cruise control and see if it can steer for itself. That's not courage, that's stupidity. And we need to understand the difference. Courage is standing up for God to do God's work with His strength. And and so this would include things like living openly as a Christian, not hiding it. Tomorrow morning saying, yeah, I went to church yesterday. We talked about courage. We talked about how God saved a people and just see what they do. It's awesome. Because God uses things like that. I'm going to do that at my work this week. (laughs) I know. It's easy to say, Pastor, you work at a church. So I have to find other places, whether it be the grocery store or other places where people don't know God or neighbors and live openly as a Christian. Maybe it's courage in standing for the truth. Maybe it's courage in a difficult trial to still choose joy rather than despair and show people that your God is able through your attitude. Maybe it's faithfulness and endurance in situations where no one else is being faithful and we feel alone in a decision that is right. Maybe it's a decision to be the one encourager when everyone else is ripping people apart. Maybe the one truth-sayer when everyone else is okay with the lie. Maybe it's the one who stands up for the innocent and the helpless when no one else will. 
these are calls for courage to stand for God. Esther had to learn that in this passage. She didn't start by recognizing those, those opportunities, but she did. She acted. Second lesson there is courage looks past self to what God is doing. And I already mentioned this in point number three. Courage looks past self to what God is doing. Fear stifles courage because fear is about what will happen to me, not what God might do for his purpose. Total different mindset that allows us to step out in faith for him. God's sovereignty should actually motivate us to act, not keep us from acting. We don't just sit there saying, oh, sit on my couch, see what God does. Go, God. No, God's sovereignty means I can step out in faith for him and boldness for him and say this is wrong or, or this is what we should be doing. And God's sovereignty will then fill that in and do his work and I don't have to be the one that worries about how he does it. I just have to, to act in his, on his behalf and for God. Oh, village, we can stand up and be bold people for Christ. And it's worth it. The next lesson, which we already mentioned in point number four, God sovereignly has you where he is at. There are no accidents. We said that with Esther, right? All her events of life led her to that point for such a time as this. Village, I got news for you. All of your past has brought you to the point where you're at now with whatever job situation, living situation, whatever trials you're under for such a time as this. He will not waste where he has brought you. So be looking. How can God use where I'm at, the circumstances I am, for me to courageously stand up for him and say, he is my God, I trust him, I hope you do the same. Man. This, this, this chapter gets us fired up. And finally, what we just mentioned in point number five, we need to remember that fervent prayer and community are essential parts of courage in crisis. The fervent prayer and community are essential parts of courage in the middle of crisis. We need to be humble enough to say we need God and we need each other. This is not the time, and this world is not the time to try to go it alone for Christ. I love it in, in our community group, and I invite you to come to one of our community groups. In our community group, often people are asking for prayer for someone they want to share the gospel with. That is huge. So we all pray. Help them to be able to share the gospel with that person. What does that do for them next time they see them? Well, number one, they know that the next week they're going to come back to community group and say whether they shared the gospel or not which is a great motivation. But now they know they're backed by the family of God and they're backed by prayer and they can step out and courageously say, you know what? God loves you. And even though we've sinned and we've, we've just shaken our fist at God, he died on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin and forgiveness is available for you. And life with Christ is the best thing in the world. Think about it. All of this represents just a full commitment. Giving every part of ourselves for God's purposes. No holding back. No holding back. So here's my question to you. Where does God want you to be courageous this week? I challenge us as a church for every one of us to find at least one place where we can stand up and be courageous for God this week. One situation, one conversation, one attitude, one action. Let's be a church of action on this. 
say, we are going to follow Esther's example and be courageous for God because he is sovereign. He is working. We just have to be part of it. See what he does. Bill Borden, a young missionary who died in Egypt, on his way to China, never even got to the mission field, but on his way there, he died, and in his notes were written, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, hold nothing back from God. No retreat, I'm not going to change my mind. No regrets, whatever what happens, I'm going to trust that God uses this. May that be our call to be all out for Christ. See what he does. This morning we're going to celebrate communion. And we're celebrating the king that does invite us near when we mourn, that does invite us near when we have sin in our lives and has already paid the price for that, has already solved that through his son, Jesus Christ. We're reminded that he sovereignly was protecting the line of Christ so we could celebrate this. And if Esther goes differently, we could say, well, then we, we, we aren't here. We aren't in church. No, no, we, we learned today God was going to save his people no matter what. The question was how. And we're celebrating today that Jesus Christ came, died on the cross for our sins. Lord God, our Father, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. The ultimate act of love, of grace, of courage. Lord, I pray that we would respond by being people of courage not by our own strength and not by our own, for our own desires and wants, but courage to stand up for you, the God of the universe that loves and shows grace and wants all men to be saved. Lord, may we this week take steps of courage. Whatever's been holding us back, whatever fear might be there, Lord, whatever circumstances are just pressing in on us, Help us to courageously have attitudes and actions that reflect that we are children of God, that we are yours. Thank you, God, in your name. Amen.